0: This is Ryan Evans for a very special War on the Rocks podcast. Uh, we're here at the Center for New American Security here in Washington, D.C. We have uh, some really smart people here from CNAS. We're going to be talking about the new offset strategy, whatever shape or form that might take. Uh, we have Paul Share. We have Bridge Colby, a veteran of the War on the Rocks podcast series. We have Sean Brimley, Amy Chang, Ben Fitzgerald, and Van Jackson. And uh, we're just going to have a nice little conversation here. Um, and you know, just because we're at a think tank, it doesn't mean it's a stodgy environment. For context, we have at least three toy robots, a Star Wars <laughs> model, uh, a plastic shotgun, a Radio Shack drone, and a bottle of bourbon on the table. So,
1: and a model of it.
0: So, anyone th- 47B. Yeah. And any- oh, that's right. I thought Star Wars. Anyway. Yeah. Um,
2: <laughs> it's a different type of Star Wars. <laughs> different
0: type of Star Wars. It's the Navy.
3: It's Star
0: Wars. So anyone thinks that think techs take themselves too ser- take themselves too seriously, they clearly don't. So first thing I want to talk about, and we could just throw it open, is um, Secretary Hagel is on his way out. Ash Carter is uh, supposedly on his way in. Um, you know, obviously Bob Work has been a big driving force behind an offset strategy coming out. Um, but Hegel embraced it. Ash Carter, does his entry and Hegel's exit change anything? What's What's Ash
2: Carter going to take? Going to bring to this issue? So, so ben? well, well I, I said some stuff um, in, in in the media, maybe two weeks ago, where I said that clearly for Hegel, this wasn't his intellectual endeavor, but he did a good job of um, providing top cover to to, to Bob Work. So I think you had a pretty good sort of division of labor between the secretary and the deputy secretary. Um, Ash Carter is steeped in all of the history that the Bob work is as well. So I don't think there's going to be any confusion about what an offset strategy is or what the key challenges are. Uh, the only the only thing that those two will need to figure out is who is the secretary of defense and who is the deputy secretary of defense and how to keep moving the whole thing forward. Um, so I, I, I think that it's going to be a very positive time, and most folks are, are seeing – Ash Carter, Bob Work, and Frank Kendall leading this stuff is a very positive um, uh, set of events. Could
0: you just give a little context? Because I I know what you what you meant when you said that, but it's a little inside baseball. What you mean is 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 Bob Work and Ash Carter have sort of a similar skill set and background. Is that what you mean?
2: Potentially, and I think also. So you need Bob is really good at running the building and moving this thing forward. Um, It would be uh unfortunately if two people started trying to do that unless they did exactly the same thing and also you still need the secretary of defense to do all of the like up and outs policy engagement globally um so it, I, they definitely have the skills to do that but it's not been that long since ash carter was the deputy secretary of defense like he might he may go to the wrong office when he gets in um and, and and we hope that he doesn't like he's the secretary of defense which he's completely capable of doing
4: sean yeah no i think that's right and i just um you know i've been reading um a book called Preventative Defense, which is a book that Ash Carter and John White edited I think in the sort of mid to late 90s maybe. And there was a chapter that he wrote um, that he wrote talking about the history of the offset strategy essentially and, and America's military technical dominance. And so for me, it, it's if all the things that Ben sort of articulated, work out, that there's a division of labor, yeah. that there's a top cover, that um, there's sort of, you know, Bob's allowed to sort of run the internals of the building with the right top cover and leadership from someone like Ash Carter, I think that's all great. And I think that someone like, like Ash, he's steeped in all of this history in a way that is probably unique. Yep. You know, Bill Perry is sort of a longtime mentor of his. And so that's probably, in the context of thinking about military technology, in the context of thinking about pursuing a, a so-called third offset strategy, I think it's potentially a great, a great thing in the sense that Ash will look at what he's doing in the context and fully informed as to how people look at someone like Bill Perry. I'll think people think of someone like Harold Brown and what they did in the late 70s. And so I think he will look, uh, in part, I think he will look at what he's doing day to day in the the context of uh, of how history might look at it down the road, which I think is good.
3: Hmm. Van? Yeah, I think there's high potential for good things with uh, Ash Carter and Bob Work. But if I had any kind of fear or reservation, it would be... uh, not reducing strategy to questions of force structure like we have to get force structure right but both of these guys are steeped in that side and the policy side or what policies do you pursue given force structure that has to be answered too totally. and so we'll see what happens well after isn't
0: isn't that, that that's some, one of the more one of the uncharitable assessments of Ash Carter's um, selection of appointment to Secretary of Defense is maybe he's someone that you know the white this White House clearly doesn't like a lot of independent thought out of the Pentagon and the, the cabinets. I think in general it's 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 uh, not unfair to say. What, how do you think Ash Carter is going to adjust to that sort of environment, as, particularly as far as these those policies that Van brought up are concerned?
5: So I mean Carter certainly uh, Paul Shar here. So Carter certainly doesn't have a reputation of being a pushover by any means. Uh-huh. I think that. The fact that the White House uh, definitely is very involved, there's a very direct approach in terms of defense policy and things like Iraq and Afghanistan definitely pushes some pressure towards this danger of ending up with two deputy secretaries of defense, which would really not be helpful. The, the other thing though, and which was sort of helpful, is when uh, Carter was the deputy, he was more involved in um, international affairs and relations than most deputies were. Yeah. Um, and so he would travel overseas and engage with other countries. Um, and so that's a, a positive, I think, a very positive sign.
2: I think one of the other interesting things that comes out as we start looking at whether it's an offset strategy or just military technical superiority in the future is sort of to Van's point that we need to be able to, to sort of pair effectively our general policy and our broader strategy and our political objectives with technology investments. Um, we had a really good system for doing that during the Cold War. Um, and we're still sort of applying that system in a completely different environment. So how do we how do we pair those things up in a in a mutually beneficial way? Uh, that's still still TBD. But probably if if any team's going to be able to figure it out, it's going to be this team.
0: What are what are sort of if you would if you were to give some advice to a Secretary Ash Carter for his first let's say hundred days as Secretary of Defense as far as offsets concerned, what are the first things that he needs to do? What, I mean, it sounds like some of the some of the fundamental principles of the offset are still not defined and what we exactly mean by the term necessarily. I mean, there's still a lot of exploration going on, right?
4: Yeah, I, think, I mean, I, I think there's some, dis- you're getting into areas where I think we'll, we'll, there's some disagreement which will be good. For me personally, it's about getting the, the FY16 budget framed in the right way. And so I'm, I'm assuming that there are choices inside the 16 budget drop that, can be, that are real choices and that can be leveraged um, through the prism of this is what offset is. Um, I, if that's not the case, I worry in the sense that all this rhetoric just doesn't really materialize into anything. And, and by the time we get to sort of the next this, the next program review and sort of late summer, early fall, all this is kind of forgotten. And there's a new narrative that takes hold. So, you know, I, it's not necessarily. Like Van's right. It's about strategy. It's about it's about policy, but it, it's also about the budget. And if you can't get a couple quick wins that can sort of prove mm. prove out the concept. Okay. And, and, and bring some reality to the rhetoric, then I worry.
2: And along that line, uh, this is Amy here, I think conveying the, the message of what actually an offset really means to um, the general population, to people on the Hill, as well as people um, in the defense industries to really understand how this is different from, from prior um, uh, offsets and, and, and what their vision is and how that is translatable um, for, for each of their interests.
3: The funny thing about Sean's point, which I actually kind of agree with, is shocking. <laughs> That's the funny thing, yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, the uh, the the latest budget that just got approved was for The the approach that's been taken is this unfunded requirements tradition Mm -hmm. that Gates had sort of put a stop to with the resumption of unfunded requirements and the service's ability to go directly to Congress effectively, Mm -hmm. appeal to uh, sort of parochial interest in their districts and this kind of thing. Uh, It raises questions about the utility, Is, is offset, is any kind of strategy? just rhetoric. And so the concept of an offset or something to define force structure that involves priorities is hugely important. It becomes more important if sequester sticks or if the unfunded requirement thing goes away, like under Gates. The way uh, the budget process is set up now, going into the future, if Ash Carter doesn't get the unfunded requirements under control, then any sort of talk about strategy on the force structure side is going to be lip service, I think.
2: Bridge Colby, you're the other person at the table most likely to be the Secretary of Defense in the future? Not
3: true, sorry. not true. I'd I be curious because, because he looks
2: pretty true. good in a suit and has not great true. hair.
1: That's, that's right. right. <laughs> well, what, what one of you guys. The, the what, what Asians do, love him. What do I think about the, the whole issue? I mean, um, well, look, I, th- I definitely agree with Sean in the sense that... Uh, um, you got to get it in the budget. I mean, Russ Rumbaugh has a good, he, he uh, I think it's David Stockman line, he says the budget is a rolling history of decisions, and this, the way decisions are manifested is in, is in the budget. And, uh, you know, I'm a fervent supporter of the offset. I mean, my sense is that, that Ash Carter, you know, whom I do not know at all, really, uh, but, you know, he's clearly a big brain. He's clearly got a strong personality, as Paul, as you, as you point out. He's not going to be a wilting violet. Um, he's, it's, He's a, he's, a, he's a tactician, you know, sort of politically and otherwise. So I doubt he's going to confront the White House on things like, you know, withdrawal from Afghanistan or basic policy on ISIS in Iraq. But that leaves a huge amount of space. And my, my, my sense is that the White House doesn't care about what's going on internally in the Pentagon as long as it doesn't really affect the top line particularly or, you know, doesn't otherwise combust. And you know what? What I what I hope is that you know there's a new majority coming in. Senator McCain's taking over the, the helm on, on SASC, and Congressman Thornberry uh, has, has a very good reputation on the on the armed serv- House Armed Services side. You know there, there's an opportunity. There's a potential constellation where there could be real support for enforcing the kind of strategic choices that that have to be made. I mean, you know, Van, your point is right. I mean, you know. If if inertia is just the, the prime driver, then of course you don't end up with a strategy. But but at some point, you know, the international environment, uh, you know, the military technological environment will probably become so uh, daunting and so problematic that that you're going to have to you're going to have to change the way you do things. And, and what's so commendable about the Alsace strategy is tr- trying to get ahead of that, yeah. trying to spend smarter sooner. So. You know, I'm hopeful. I don't know if I'm optimistic, but uh, but I think there's an opportunity in these next two years, uh, maybe kind of under, uh, you know, in a way, um, you know, this kind of a group and people who talk about offset and kind of wonk out about offset often talk about um, Bill Perry and Harold Brown and, you know, Assault Breaker and that kind of thing. But what most people see as the offset strategy as its manifestation was the Reagan defense buildup, yeah right yeah. you know and 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 you know I mean his, his passes is never prologue or past is never exactly replicated, but but in some sense you know we could get something started here, which whatever the administration is next time, it's likely to be probably tougher on defense issues than this one um, uh, uh, you know could carry forward and maybe appropriate some of them. And you know, hopefully, at least the the Pentagon guys would say, "Sure, you know, it's your idea, whatever." You know, in some way, some Republicans like to like to say that that, 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 that the pivot and the rebalance was actually started in the Bush administration. You know, I don't, I'm, We're not here to adjudicate whether that's true or not. It doesn't really matter ultimately. But it's but
2: you know, it's a good that's sign that's when the next yeah. administration, it's exactly.
4: a different party, sort of tries to appropriate right. things and claim credit for. Right. it. Right. That's
2: right. Yeah. But I think I mean, from my, there seems to be. Some level of consensus, certainly around the folks at the table here, I think more broadly in in Washington, that there is the potential that the next two years is a meaningful window of opportunity, not just in the political cycle, but in terms of the people who are in place, to do something. Now, what that thing is, and whether it actually plays out, are still to be debated and and highly questionable. But in terms of the conditions for something to happen, we seem to have that, and that doesn't happen every day, which
0: day. I'm going to bring up a phrase that um, a lot of people in this room might be tired of. We, I certainly got tired of it. The rocks. We actually declared a moratorium on submissions on this subject. this air-sea battle. Yeah. And it's a debate that sort of got tiresome. I think a few people in this room were involved, involved in it in different ways and would agree, I, I hope, with that assessment. It's just something that got talked about a lot. No one was entirely sure what it meant. No one agreed what it meant. Uh, and then it just sort of seemed to have Gone left the headlines, at least in the defense space, Uh, what can Offset learn from the at least the public relations side of the air-sea battle experience? Well, this is where you'll get I think some disagreement because
4: I very much agree with with that. I think the way to approach that is, is, in my mind anyway to answer the question of what is the core operational challenge that Pentagon planners need to prepare for? You know, what is that that what is that sort of set of operational challenges that you know that a command future commander chief will will absolutely you know require or have to or have to have in the in the portfolio? For me, it's you know making sure that we can penetrate at range very highly contested environments, integrated air defense systems, um, you know a salvo competition with an actor like China, which that has huge you know capacity to throw, throw missiles, et cetera. And so for me, that's kind of like the defining operational challenge. And I think the problem of the air-sea battle com- uh, uh, conversation was it kind of got wrapped into everything. You know, no one really wanted to talk about China. Everyone in the building talked about China, but everyone on the outside was sort of, well, this can apply to Russia, this can apply to Iran, it's...
1: Well, or the it, building when they were talking to that's outside, everybody the, on the outside yeah, assumed it was about China. That's right. right? Yeah, so so the whole like conversation whole whole was bizarre just kind eye. of
4: kind of a really b- bizarre land, yeah. and I just think that in the context of Sean's view, in the context of Osset, you've got to go at that problem. You've got to go at that problem. This is not about future land warfare. This is not about getting our, as important as it is, getting, you know, future infantry squad, highly
0: networked with autonomous systems. Well, I mean, it could be about getting troops on land through well, all maybe. these. Well, maybe. I just think that, you know, look, because how are you going to get the army to access an area? Like you may, to, not, yeah, need, you may, they
4: may not need. you may not need, need to. Yeah. But it so, so, it so, so, so scale. for me, yeah. that is the pressing operational challenge. I, and my friend Bob Martnash, who who couldn't be here today, he was he testified recently. Well, we testified, but but he had the better he had the better testimony, as, as is always the case. But um, actually, no, that's not, that's not true. It was Dave Ockmanic who said this. In the, I thought you were about to say that's not true? I had the better. I had the
1: yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That was probably also no, true. No, yeah. Dave Ockmanic, who and is I was I was firing of, that thing. He's
4: a sort of rock star. He said, look, in the 70s, People didn't wake up thinking about how do they retain their technological edge. They woke up thinking about, holy crap, how are we going to sort of you know, strike the Soviet second echelon in Europe? And that was sort of the driving operational challenge. Right. That's part of the reason why I think that period of time you saw some success, because they focused, because they had to, on this key high-end operational challenge. I think if we don't do that, if offset becomes everything from, you know, cyber to land warfare to, you know, the net, how we approach, you know, biometric analysis for the next counterinsurgency, then the whole thing just kind of puffs away into thin air and, you know, we lose this opportunity to make some real change.
5: Let's, let's jump right in here because this is actually a point of disagreement between some of us. So Paul Shara here. So this is, I think we'd all agree that if offset becomes another buzzword, another transformation, then we've lost a great opportunity here. But there is this question of how, how much does this really need to be focused on a particular operational problem? And on the one hand, if you do that, um, you can help really drive solutions to that problem. On the other hand, there are a lot of really significant defense challenges that are not about China and power projection. Yep. Whether they're cyber threats, China's not necessarily the most sophisticated actor out there. Whether they're homeland defense threats like loose weapons of mass destruction or terrorists or uh, you know, North Korean missiles. There are lots of other significant challenges where, that are not lesser-included of China at, at all. all. And the, the DIV needs to be able to adapt to. And so I think there is a, a risk of sort of target fixation on China and maybe uh, missing out on some really important challenges. But the,
1: yeah, well, if I can just yeah.
4: two-finger on that, and I'll sort of get out of the way, because I think I agree with, with Paul. I think this is part of the problem. This is why Air-Sea Battle became so conflated, because... When I talk about offset, I'm not talking about U.S. defense strategy writ large, no. right? I think that's the problem. People are looking at this offset conversation as a replacement for, say, like a national defense strategy or a QDR kind of thing. Yeah. I look at offset as, as, a, as a particular prism to, to, to sort of focus the Pentagon on solving a particular operational challenge. It, it, but it's not something to, to the exclusion of all these other uh, all these other challenges. Isn't
0: that what air sea battle was originally envisioned? Uh, envisioned I think
4: as so, as but as I think well? a lot got lost in translation, uh, and it got the air sea battle conversation sort of replaced the broader
1: conversation about what a what a US defense strategy ought to look like. Um, and uh, well, let me let me let me let me take a harder line than Sean on this point because I, I actually I mean. I don't think anybody is going to disagree that the United States military and the United States security apparatus needs to deal with multiple threats. But the question is kind of what's the balance that's required or what's the aggregation that's required based on the scale, the sophistication, and the consequence of the challenge. And I think my point, and Sean, you may agree, is the scale of the challenge posed in particular by China, but, but I, I think you could, you could net them together as sort of major power, kind of near-peer or quasi-near-peer threats, so you would also be thinking about Russia in a similar context. Are so significant that if you if you lost the edge there, it would have enormous and cascading strategic impact. Now, clearly, we need to be figuring out uh, dealing with loose nukes or the potential of terrorist use, or terrorists in general, but certainly terrorist use of WMD. Um, we need to have you know kind of medium level capabilities, but I think. We want to do a lot of things, but A, we can't do everything, so we need to prioritize. And B, certain things are less costly or can be do, done more efficiently. So, obviously, you know, for instance, like you know, unmanned systems can be used for reconnaissance in a non-stealthy configuration, even if you, even if they're built off of a model that's you know also designed for low observability. But my point is, partially because of the bureaucratic reasons, and political reasons, and, and inertia reasons, which are enormous. I mean, the services are still divvying up the defense pie roughly equally, which is not a strategic allocation. Uh, it's, it's a bureaucratic one, a political one. I think, I think we gotta figure out major power competition and stay ahead of that. And if we get that right, everything else can be mitigated, even if it's not a lesser included uh, with, with, with the other resources available. But if we try to do this balance force, uh, then I think we're gonna, we're gonna end up losing. And I think uh, Deputy Secretary Work gave a very good speech at the Council on Foreign Relations that, that I think you guys all saw, but as I commend to the audience. Uh, where he pointed out, that, you know, we're going to changes in the presence mission, you know, that, that changes in the whole basing infrastructure, based on where, where, uh, where, where warfare uh, is likely to go. So I think that's, um, you know, I think focusing and understanding the, and staying ahead of the main challenge is is the most important thing.
2: So, um, just for this is Ben here. Uh, Paul and I, you're I must look. Yeah, you're <laughs> Australian in the room. This is Ben. Uh, all of the swearing will come from here. Um, for, for, for reference, Paul and I, I think, a much more of a view than than Bridge and and Sean. I'm, I'm not sure what Van and Amy fall, but we'll, we'll we'll sort that out in the in the coming minutes. We
0: need to reconfigure oh. the seating in here to
2: reflect.
0: I want the shotgun and the bourbon. Um, line.
3: <laughs> uh, you can keep your robots. The says the tech guy. By yeah. Right. yeah, yeah.
2: It's, I can go off the grid with that. The, uh, so. Quickly on the SC Battle thing, I think for me that just shows the paucity of strong thinking in the building and the the, the sense the, the, the ease with which people will adhere to anything that gets any bureaucratic momentum. Mm-hmm. So SE battle was an operational concept. Um you can argue that that there's an argument to be made that its primary purpose was to defend Air Force and Navy budget. Um, budget levels, which it was successful at. By the TXM's
0: way, TXMS has a great line along those lines. He yeah. said, "Air sea battle wasn't a strategy to penetrate China; it's a strategy to penetrate Congress."
2: Yeah, <laughs> mission accomplished. Um, the um, so I think that the, the the lesson here for offset stuff is we don't want it to become more than it actually is, um, and also every pet rock that someone has in the building is about to become an offset strategy. So you know, lasers offset, Star Wars offset. New paper clips offset. It's gonna. So it's gonna be quite frustrating. Um, the 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 key issue for me in this whole thing is about framing. What what's driving the need to change, and how do we orient around that? And and it, for me, it's a question of are we orienting on a threat, or are we trying to withdraw, or, or is the threat the diminution of U.S. technological advantage over time based on macro factors? Now, the, se- the second one doesn't sound sexy at all. It's a lengthy thing to say, and it's harder to get bureaucratic support for. But I think that that is the issue, um, because if we, if, we are, if we optimize for one threat and we're wrong, it could be really expensive to, to, to address. And this is the persistent issue that we keep coming up against. So when I was talking with Bill Perry maybe three, four months ago now... He was saying that You are out for drinks, you know, hanging out. Whatever. (laughs) At the the cabana. (laughs) We're in Palo Alto. He drove away in a Prius. It was awesome. Ah, um, Saving the world. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But anyway, um, he he made the point that when he became um, the Undersecretary of Defense for R&E in 1974 or whatever it was, when he started all of this stuff, he said that he had a choice. He could either try to implement an offset strategy or he could try to undertake meaningful acquisition reform and he made the decision that offset was more important and was more likely to be successfully implemented than acquisition reform this is 40 years ago so we can't kick the can down the road for that for forever and we've got the the pentagon has this achilles heel of like it's just really hard to But change. hold on but I think I think the point
1: here is I take a different lesson from air sea battle the reason air sea battle it didn't or you know I think it's a going concern I hope it succeeds so. amen air sea battle but uh, is that, that, that the Pentagon was talking about this air-sea battle thing, and then it would say, "Oh, but it, but it's, it has to do with a variety of countries, you know, country yeah, X yeah. and country Y and country Z." It didn't. It wasn't connected to a strategy, right? Air-sea battle makes perfect sense if you're saying, which is which is I think this similar to what offsets doing, which is starting from the f- fundamental principle: the U.S. sponsors this network of alliances and partnerships, and we are the big guy who protects people, so they feel safe in our network. They work together. There, from that it's really great to have an effective deterrent. We would prefer not to rely on nuclear weapons to do that a la 1955. Ergo, let's have conventional superiority. Yep. Our conventional superiority is under challenge. It ain't from, cha- it's not being challenged by ISIS, you right. know? We can, we can handle ISIS, but it is being challenged by China and Russia. So what, what, so offset, air-sea battle, things like that that are designed to sustain and extend American con- uh, conventional superiority yep. are, are clearly connected. To a broad, a broad national strategy, and I think yep. that's the problem with the AirSea Battle story.
2: Yeah, that's right. So, and I'll, I'll, I'll shut up in a second. Just to, to, the, the, second point that I was going to make is, so far in this conversation, we're all about offset. If you look at the actual initiative that Bob Work has announced and the stuff that they are actively working today in the Pentagon, it's called the Defense Innovation Initiative, and has multiple lines of operation. So they're doing long-range research and development. They're doing um, new operational concepts, concepts and wargaming. They're doing a number of things, and they hope that those efforts will help them generate an offset strategy. So my read of what the Pentagon is doing is that they're actually hedging a little bit. They're trying to address some of the underlying issues, um, and at the same time, doing that in a way that allows them to make some specific decisions um, and and, and formulate a specific strategy. Sean, Paul, and I yesterday were speaking with um, a Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense, I won't say which one, um, who was at, at pains to say... I hope you guys didn't hear me say offset anywhere in that in that thing. And he's working actively on this. So I think that the, the, there are a number of people in key roles in the Pentagon who understand this trade-off that we're talking about and are trying to achieve a bit of both. I understand the risks from my perspective, but I'm actually quite comfortable with the way that's been laid out. Um, because certainly from my perspective, I'm not saying don't worry about China, don't worry about power projection, if we can't deal with state-based threats, and we're focused on, like, that's the wrong prioritization. Yeah. It's just a question of how we balance.
0: I, I, just, I just want to point out that I'm, I'm kind of agnostic in this specific debate, but one important thing happened during this debate that you, dear listener, uh, couldn't see, and is that Bridge and Sean both poured themselves more <laughs> bourbon, whereas Paul and then did not so I, I'm sort of default mod, mod, on, their side, on
2: their side on <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, th- I think that means that they're more nervous and not question what to say no, so they're clean to alcohol no, 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 the, the, more so drink,
4: the more we drink the more we
1: feel that we're winning yeah. <laughs> <laughs> can I, can I, can I uh, not to of course keep going can. but but you know there's an interesting like at a more visceral level I don't know if you guys saw um, a general uh, uh, McMaster's speech at Georgetown and Paul as a former ranger and did you see his speech at Georgetown <laughs> anyway, so about the warrior ethos. No, it, not, sorry, I yes, uh, No, no, yeah. but uh, it's, it's, it was interesting. His because, Veterans day thing was great. Yeah, it was a great speech. Well, up. it was great, but it was interesting. So, I mean, look, I, I clearly would not challenge General McMaster on the sort of warrior ethos or, or what it takes to, to, to conduct round combat effectively and the nature of courage and so forth. But, you know, wrapped into that was... Um, uh, a stronger argument, which he characterizes being against the revolution in military affairs, mm. which is the kind of yesteryear term, but I saw as a sort of a veiled uh, you know, strike back against the sort of offset idea. And I'm troubled to see, and, I've, and Paul, you and I have talked about this. I mean, you don't, I, don't, I don't want to associate you with what I'm about to say if you don't want to. But um, it, you know, a, a pushback from people as often associated with the army um, who who kind of exhibit this sort of opposi- skepticism or even opposition yeah. to the maintenance of technological uh, advantage. And, um, you know, to me, going forward, I mean, there, there, for the last few decades we have been able to be all things to all men in a sense. And I yeah. think going forward we're just not going to have that, that luxury. And that, you know, I mean, to your point about Okmanek, when, when Dave Okmanek and Ted Warner and all these other guys were working on on the original offset strategy, the army was the centerpiece of yeah. conventional deterrence, yeah. and, and the air force obviously yeah. air land battle. So right. it's not a hostility to a particular service, but it's a, a recognition. And of course, in the European theater, the army continues to play a signal role, but that's a different thing than mass tank armies and you know et cetera et cetera. So yeah, yeah. Uh, you know I, I think I think I, to me that just reinforces the the importance of clarity and almost you know Dean Ashton's famous line about clearer than truth, almost that you got to be crystal clear. Maintenance of military technological superiority has got to be the, the yeah.
2: I, I think that's right. Um, I, I, I've known HR for a, mm-hmm. like since he was a colonel, and, mm-hmm. and I love him. Mm-hmm. I, I think he's creating something of a false dichotomy. Mm-hmm. You've even either, either yeah. got human warfare right. or technological right. warfare, right. and like, that, that that's not, that's inaccurate. Mm-hmm. Um, so we, we continue to. I don't want to get all Clausewitzian on the whole thing, but you know, <laughs> like, that's the nature of warfare. But that doesn't—that's not separate from thinking about technology, and we need to bring those those things together. That I, I get frustra- frustrated when people say it's all about the people, and I'm like, yeah, yeah. You, you, you can't just march with a bunch of master's degrees and bayonets in a conflict and assume that you're going to carry the day, yeah. right? Like it's not—it's like, oh, I've, I'm thinking my way out of getting shot in the gut. Well, you know what? To be fair,
0: sorry to interrupt, but to be fair, I think it, that's a reaction against sort of an American cultural proclivity to look for technological solutions to for everything. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Instead of focusing on quality of personnel, and yeah. I think anyone—I mean, I several people in here have run organizations. Um, and all problems are people problems at the end of the day. Yeah, no, I'm with, I'm with I'm
1: you on that. But. Oh, one, one quick point. But the, the interesting thing is that the army there, there's this sense that McMaster is associated with this sort of coin school, which to me no, 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 no. no? okay, okay, no, no. then that's that. But okay, then let, let me. Per, me just very good at it. Let me, yeah. sep- let me separate General McMaster. Mm. But I don't think the, der- the 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 conclusion from your correct point. Which is that? Which I completely agree with. Which is that technology, and including military technology, will not solve all of your problems, or even many of them. It does not mean that like 150,000 guys on the ground will solve the problem. I mean, yeah, in a yeah. sense, like yeah, stabilization, it doesn't no work very well either. So well, actually, works. Let me,
5: let me jump in here because actually, I think right. you're mixing up a number of different concepts, right? I mean, there yeah. is something of a parochial debate inside the Pentagon, and people sort of trying to, trying to uh, bolster their own budgets, mm-hmm. right? That that's something like that going on. But there's a strong um, sort of current of uh, a push against technology in the Army. And I don't think it has anything to do with air sea battle. I think it has to do with the Army's own experience mm-hmm. that it went into yeah. places like Iraq and Afghanistan with massive That's technological right. superiority in conventional ways, with a vision of future combat systems that was even more bought into sort of this right. RMA, mm-hmm. what turned out to be just complete Raw. smoke and mirrors yeah. right. on the ground right. side. Right. Right. You know, I, I have sort of a, a foot in both worlds, and then I work on technology issues now. I think Can you tell a them a bit about your background, Paul? Yeah, I mean, I was a, I was an Army Ranger. I fought, I did four tours in Iraq and Afghanistan, and so like, and, and, and I was in the special ops community where what makes special operations work is the people. It's screening people. Yeah, they have more money, and so they have modestly better kit, but if you go, to the, you gave those to anybody, they, they, yeah. you wouldn't have a special operator. And so um, I think part of it is just that the nature of warfare on the ground is different. We. Bob Scales has sort of this. this yeah. He says a lot of interesting things. Can um, <laughs> <but he, laughs> you tell just break down who General Scales? General Scales, is. Is a former Army uh, general, and he, he comments quite a bit on. Uh, he's retired. Comments quite a bit on various various Army issues, and he makes sort of this point about casualty ratios in World War II, with yeah. bombers, uh, submariners, and infantrymen all having the three highest casualty rates. And since World War II, those have plummeted precipitously for bombers and submariners, uh, but not for the infantry. And I think he misses the boat on the answer. Why? He sort of says, well, we don't, you know, support the infantry. Uh, there may be some truth there, but I think fundamentally it's because we are been able to leverage technology in ways that we're limited with people because you're limited by what you can carry. Yeah. Until we have some kind of, you know, exoskeleton with some kind of crazy power suit, and I think that's quite a bit down the road... Um, you're just limited by, by fundamental but, weight but Which has never it, changed it, That's really true since and, the, and, you, and
1: you know this Roman infinitely, infinitely better than I But on the other hand And we were facing an, an inferior opponent obviously Although a formidable one But the, the, And not to defend the RMA stuff But like This to me has more to do with the objectives of the war And when I, when I was involved in the Middle East stuff I was always struck Again not to return to this, But like it's all about what is the objective in the yeah. war clearly if your attempt is if your interest is in like a sustained pacification of a, of a recalcitrant population these kind of people things are going to be particularly important and clearly in ground conflict in general which you, again you know much better than i but in terms of like the initial f- encounter it was decisive and that was a different model than the united states had pursued say in 1965 in vietnam for instance you know so so like i again obviously right but it's it's more about like you know, and obviously that's combined arms. It's not just the ground component. But I mean, it seems to me that technology is a huge thing that you want to embrace in the ground component as well. I mean, the, the idea being like, let the other bastard die for his country, right? I mean, yeah. It's, I
2: mean, I mean, I think even even amongst people who are not that there are defined schools on this, but like even for the like human centric mm-hmm. ground guy, they're not going to be like, oh yeah, take away take away the sights in my tank and my <laughs> calm right? Like, and 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 I think that this is where sometimes we get into this thing of the difference between technology and capability. Um, and, and, and so people trust the capabilities that they have. They just don't want the newfangled, crazy sure. um, yeah. thing that doesn't actually work, which is a completely sane, reasonable... I'm thinking of... I've kind I'm, of got away from it. You know,
4: well, I mean, it, it all relates, frankly, right? I mean, I think of Carl you know famous book, Masks of War. Nice. And... Uh, yeah, from now on, let's try to get get my yeah, nerdy geek. Yeah. <laughs> the more obtrusive, the better. And the, the winner can you know drink some more. But I think you know, I mean, I think with the army, it's it's, it's they value their people. They value their end strength. They're, they yeah. value active duty end strength. And you see that sort of play out. I mean, with all due respect to the argumentation, I mean, this is kind of all these arguments are kind of falling in line. I mean, you know, the Navy they're controlled by, right, you know, they're led by sort of fighter pilots right now, carrier-based fighter pilots, and, you know, guess what? That's why, you know, introducing unmanned systems on the carrier is such a knockdown, drag-out fight, you know. All right. oh, the requirements need to be for ISR. Well, yeah, probably because that helps, you know, preserve the, the budget share for a future, you know, manned carrier. Fighter aircraft, and, you know, you see this in the Air Force, too. So, you know, that's part of the reason why, again, I think Sean's preference is, very clear focus, very clear uh, focus on a core operational challenge, and batten down the hatches, and civilians are going to have to run this thing for the next couple of years. And if you're, if you're going to come out on, on the other side with anything truly meaningful.
3: So this is Van. Just to be clear, I think everybody probably agrees on this as well. Maybe, maybe not, Bridge. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> force structure does not inherently solve any of your problems that you face in the world. Uh, maybe in like the most abstract deterrent sense possibly, but probably not. Um, and so the question about what's the optimal force structure for the future has to do with, or it should have to do with... Uh, expanding the possibilities or relaxing the constraints on future US policymakers and the world they're going to have to deal with. Yeah. So it's not so much about human versus technology and what's the better that's not the right way to get at this question of what's the optimal force structure. It's really about what's going to what's going to arm the future president obama or future president whoever with The best options whenever they go to the NSC meeting and make decisions are they going to be hide bound to a cavalry full of horses, or is it going to be aircraft carriers with you know stealthy U class on them? But
1: that is that is that is a bad force structure. I mean, the, the foreign policy of the 1990s was unimaginable. All the interventions was unimaginable without the This was the
3: beauty of the second offset, in contrast with the first, in essence, was the second offset expanded U.S. policy options for 20 years. That's right. Whereas the first first one. The, constr- the
1: 1950s down. boring. This is a. This is. A, to be, <laughs> and Sean and, I have and to be clear, boring isn't on, so bad. And and clear boring audience, is good.
4: Just to be clear for the audience, we're talking about the sort of the the, the, the atomic weapons. And
1: no, I mean look, this is this is and, and this is a slightly different point. But Sean and I have talked about this. The first offset strategy was brilliant. Dwight Eisenhower wanted to wanted to drop the the spent defense spending, which was consuming 12 percent of gross domestic product at the end of the Korean War. Uh, and he wanted to have a sustainable basis to uh, have a long term competition with the Soviets that would that would play to American advantages, and he wanted to minimize uh, brush fire wars, which he succeeded in, uh, and and, and exploiting the the technological advantage that the Americans had at the time, and his own personal credibility, uh, which he used to spook the Soviets sufficiently to get them not to do anything stupid, which John F. Kennedy then was not able to follow up on. But but he still managed to
0: get into office by promoting a a missile gap that didn't exist. Right,
1: right. Now, and the second offset strategy, and this is something else, is like, the second offset strategy was was very successful, but it was actually never tested in the context yeah. no, in which right. it was supposed to have been measured, which is a which is a, a, a major conflict in the European theater. Never tested. And it was supposed to be able to enable American victory even under the nuclear, the nuclear umbrella. And this is something that we don't know. We don't know if, if, if the offset. I mean, it, I, it people always say we clear, know right? that, the, yeah. that we would have beaten the Soviets. And I don't, I actually really it's question. It's a really good point. It, even, even we talk Bob about offset as success. But yeah, I, I, I'm, not, I'm not sure offset it was. Says, yeah. I mean, Soviet mass might have been enough to overwhelm. And, and, you know, sophistication, by the way. I mean, they were not—I mean, the Soviets and the Russians are, are very good at this kind of thing, not to mention the, the, the use of, uh, of, of nuclear weapons. And that's still relevant today because just to take the Russians again, the Russians are thinking quite a lot yep. about the controlled use of nuclear threats and even nuclear employment uh, for decisive effect to, to gain advantage in a, in a kind of a limited war context, the Chinese to a lesser degree. Um, but, uh, you know, that's something that we need to think about with offset, and I think it's something we also need to be conscious of in the previous offsets because people tend to be aware of the limitations of the first offset, the nuclear, the Eisenhower new look, but they, they tend to gloss over some of the the uncertainties, at least, and maybe even the downsides of the second it, offset.
2: It, it is, but for, for me, and I've, I've written about this at uh, your favorite uh, online strategy forum, More on the Rocks, um, but the, the, the... David Ignatius is favorite, too, according to him. That's right, or that's whatever. right. Is that right? That's awesome. Man. Yeah. <laughs> Is that, did he, is that true? He wrote that, yeah. Well, well that's great.
1: Yeah. It's
2: on the internet, so it must be true. It must be true. Um, So, <laughs> what the so as, as I've written about, I, I War on the rocks. Um, the, our strategic circumstance, our technological circumstance, our fiscal circumstance are all very different today than they were in the 50s and 70s. And the question is, do, do we therefore need to take a different strategic approach? Um, for me, this is where I, I, I agree completely with Sean and Bridges. Points. I just don't think that that can be the only thing that we're doing, and this comes back to Van's point about and um, about options. So we can we can get to the point where we talk about um, uh, Nasim um and say option- optionality makes me strong. Um, so I know it's boring. It's, it's not what I was getting at. No, no, but I, I, sure. Yeah, okay. So <laughs> the world is flat, <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, no, no. no. It's no, black, no. black swans. Yeah. No, I'm, I, 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 don't, I don't mean that. Um, I, I just mean. Um, so 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 perhaps rather than an offset I think we, we need to pursue an offset strategy for dealing with counter a two ad stuff, but that can't be the only thing that we're doing and I think that implies then that our broader technology strategy is more of a hedging strategy so how do we how do we continue to push forward specific um, offset capabilities at the same time as looking at harnessing commercial technology and looking at all of these other things. Because one of the other things that we don't talk about um, in, the, in the China and the Russia context is their proliferation of technologies. Um, what that means in terms of the global military operating system that the United States has been able to create since the 1970s and to, to sort of lock people in to partnership with us. We may be competing on that front. What to do about a world of proliferated drones, something that Paul, that Paul and I worry about a lot. I just want to,
0: before we wrap up, uh, we have a War on the Rocks tradition where we discuss what we're drinking. We go around. We're we're all drinking Woodford Reserve. Some of us at a more impressive pace than others.
2: Um, (laughs) I I, I'm sorry. I have to do this. Van makes a funny face every time he
0: drinks. (laughs) I was hoping for green tea. Van is clearly not was hoping for green tea. Van is clearly not a bourbon fan. That's fine. But what I want to ask you guys, in in lieu of that normal question, uh, is. What when you know you're all with your friends and family over the holidays? Talking uh, about offset and you, strategy. And you pour. are yeah, <laughs> talking about offset. Man, you pour your drink of choice. Uh, what will it be? And I'm going to start with Paul.
5: I drink my drink of choice is uh, a bullet rye whiskey with a uh, little bit of sugar and bitters in it. But does it change
0: nice. when you're with your family, or is it, that's just
5: always your drink? That's me. Yeah, regardless. Family's got to deal with it family got it too
1: alright so I'm going to be in South America so uh, maybe a Caipirinha but I think I'll we'll be looking at a, a nice Malbec or, or two
4: alright nice I've been drinking wheat beers Hefeweissens for a while
2: which probably uh, probably relates to my increasing weight <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm going to be in Australia and I can't afford to drink in Australia the stuff that I drink here <laughs> so so I won't be having a nice uh, uh, glass of neat Talisker um or a, or a Kalala or something or other, I'll probably be drinking ter- terrible, overly refrigerated
3: Australian beer. Van? <laughs> uh, my family allows me to indulge my non-alcohol drinking preferences, but my friends force me to drink whatever's on the table, and so right now it happens to be bourbon. Uh, and so over the holidays, if to the extent that I'm around friends, it'll probably be more bourbon. All right. <laughs> um, Amy
0: ducked out, but we'll get her hopefully if she comes back. Um, me, I'm I'm pretty boring and drink the same thing all the time, like Paul. So I'll probably be drinking some sort of scotch, possibly Irish whiskey, um, mm. whatever whatever I get served, really. <laughs> yeah, well, that, that's, <laughs> that's brown and liquid. <laughs> I'll drink. Um, so I want to ask. I want to bring in a different angle to this as sort of our last discussion point before we close. Andy Marshall, uh, known as a big advocate of revolution, military affairs. Uh, rumored, actually hasn't been officially announced, although every, it's the, the worst-kept secret in Washington, about to be retiring. Mm-hmm. Um, what, it is, not, is this not basically a different version of what he's been promoting for years? I mean, is he, He's sort of the continuation in many ways of, of many different sort of technological offsets in the defense world. His whole career has sort of been threaded with those. Or am I getting that narrative wrong?
3: I think he's the primary longest advocate. serving civil,
0: sorry, longest serving civil government civil servant in government, at, I believe. Yeah, okay.
3: I mean, so this is Van, uh, Andy Marshall's legacy. I think is you know rightly seen as being the primary advocate for the art of net assessment, and what the content is has changed over time, and the content seems to converge right now to some degree with viewing. A 2 AD in a China context, the operational challenge. So there's a convergence on the substance with what Bob Work is talking about, what we're talking about, and what he's been advocating lately. That doesn't make him right for his entire career. It doesn't mean that the universe is reducible to eternal strategic competition, Um, but there are instances when that's correct, and it certainly, as DOD, it's a prudent hedge to make assumptions that the next baddest guy on the block could have your number, and so you need to be prepared. I
5: think, to well, so. the to the extent that what we're talking about is addressing the anti-access challenge, uh, Mr. Marshall and people that have worked with him have been talking about that for a very long time, and there's a you know a rich history of sort of uh, various reports and documents and people sort of discussing that. But I do think it's incumbent to sort of look beyond that. A lot of the anti-access challenge we're facing today or in the near future is the proliferation of weapons. That we've basically started with precision strike weapons into the hands of others, but I think an important component that is that you know sort of the next step is out what's the next evolution. I do think a big part of it is based in continuing information technology and automation, whether it's on you know unmanned things or missiles or manned platforms, um, and that's there's a lot of work that still needs to be done to figure out what is that that future warfare environment start to look like. Rich, any comment on this?
1: Well, I mean, you know, Andy Marshall's been a, a, a giant of a of a public servant and has you know uh, sponsored a lot of a lot of great work. And I think a lot of the you know, I mean, he, he's sort of famous for not releasing his reports. So it's hard to hard to say what what you know. And, and, and internally, I, I can't judge what his influence has been. I think it you know by common reporting, it seems to has has varied over time. I mean, he was very close to Jim Schlesinger, and, and I think he got along well with Rumsfeld, I don't know, and other, other, uh, under other secretaries. But, I, you know, one of, I think one of his big legacies is his patronage of really talented people. Yeah, totally. Uh, people. And, uh, you know, uh, Andy Krepinevich, Bob Work, Tom Earhart, you know, Jim Thomas, uh, Bob Martinage, you know, I, I, these guys have been in his, in his orbit. Jerry Hendricks here. Um, and uh, Jan Van Tol, there, there are a bunch of those people, and, and you know, they differ among themselves. I differ with some of them on various issues, but they bring to um, they bring to the discussion a real uh, intellect and a real kind of strategic mindset that, that is often uh, is, is is sort of rarer than, uh, than 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 one would like. I mean, I think if anything, you know. He's probably been associated with the premier military intellectuals of the last generation and, and mentored them. So, I mean, if that's, if nothing else, that's a lot. So. Yeah, just to pick up on
4: that a little bit, I mean, uh, one of my um, maybe least favorite part, points in, at the Pentagon was when I was drafted by then Jim Miller to serve on Secretary Gates' efficiencies task force. And it was sort of, uh, <laughs> it was one of those, rid, you know, it was. Rid, you know, it was rewarding in a sense, but it was ridiculous, right? You'd, yeah. you'd, you'd get the, the building at 5.30 in the morning, you'd have a prep meeting for the prep meeting for the stat. It was just it was ridiculous. But one of the things that really rang true for me, because every single component of OSD would come into this task force and sort of justify its budget line, and we would basically, it was, it was like a three or four month audit of up,
2: up the stuff. You were like the two bobs in office space? <laughs> yeah, Yeah. exactly. <laughs> You're like, yeah, I mean, you
4: should go down to the basement. Yeah. <laughs> <then it's>, Michael,
2: <laughs> Mike, where, where's your TPS report? <laughs> yeah. um,
4: but what was what 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 really brought home to me was that in the context of that assessment was the power that comes from having a significant amount of study money yep. and having a single office oh, like. manage that significant amount of study money. Year after year
0: after year after year after year. And not even a lot of money, but not in even a, in a, a large scope, scope of the
3: defense budget. But that's right. Autonomously as well. Well, that's right, but it was just, you know,
0: to pick up
4: on what Bridge was talking about, the sort of power and influence associated with basically sponsoring an entire multiple generations of analysts that are sort of focused on relatively similar topics, you know, evolving over time. Uh, juxtaposed with how much larger amounts of study money are basically just you know, totally mismanaged by OSD, right? Policy has a little bit, all the DAZs kind of have their thing, AT&L has a little pot here and there, but it doesn't really add up to much. There's a lot of duplication, there's no coordination. I mean, I remember being an action officer in strategy, I mean sort of almost being forced yeah. to spend way more money than was prudent on an FFRDC study that got me 25 PowerPoint slides and some text and it was just a colossal waste. Yeah. Um, so, so, so to me, as you think about the future of places like Net Assessment or, or, how you know, you know, I think in my top 10 things for, like, the Youth Department of Defense writ large, yeah. you know, next to, like, U-Class or U-Cavs or submarines, or somewhere in that list it's probably not in the top five, but maybe it's in the top 10, top 15, is, like, it's the strategic use
0: of study money at the yeah. highest level. How about is just it? a single database of what studies the department's already paid I for? Would settle, I <laughs> would <Like> settle. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I would settle. for that. That shockingly doesn't exist. Uh, it's There is, it is internal amazing.
3: demand to create it, it's just time and resources. I think people recognize the need, but how far back do you go? We actually were started grappling with this right before I jumped ship. Former Pentagon guy.
2: Yeah. I think the thing for me, I, I, I think that Paul, Bridge, and Sean have covered, covered the big things. The takeaway for me when I think about net assessment in the context of offset, that there are some some parallels there, just in terms of no one is right all the time on this stuff, and we need to approach all of this with a high degree of humility. Um, if I, I think that you know, Andy Marshall was incredibly prescient on some things, and there are other things which, to this day, he's still like, I really thought that that was going to happen like twenty years sooner than it did. What? Why is that? Um, if you look at some of the the old. Uh, long-range research, development, planning documents, and some of the other offset documents. They were they were talking about this stuff, which seems like genius now. So microprocessors, precision munitions, da 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 da. We 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 overlooked the fact that they were talking about directed energy weapons in the same time in, in the same time horizon. So they were out by like forty years, maybe sixty years. So. We're not going to be right about all of this, and this for me is where a hedging strategy is probably more useful than an offset strategy, um, so, so that we have the optionality that we were making jokes about before. So let me just say, if, if you heard
5: some strange noises there, that was Ryan right shooting me in the face with the Nerf shotgun. <laughs> is that-
0: Thanks for joining us for this very special edition of the Warren Rocks podcast series. Happy holidays, uh, nerds! Happy holidays, war nerds! <laughs> holidays. We're gonna be uh, we're gonna be doing a few of these between now and June on this similar theme, and hopefully we'll get members of this group back together. I think this is a really productive, rich conversation, and I think this conversation is going to evolve in interesting ways once some more specific policies get announced um, over the coming months. And
2: uh, Amy apologizes. She was dragged away to provide expert commentary on North Korean hacking.
5: Mm. Hello. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I did that out too. (laughs)